Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we can uh, gather as your people. Uh, we think of our um, many brothers and sisters uh, from church here who are, are travelling far and wide to visit family. Uh, please watch over them. Uh, may they also find encouragement uh, from meeting with God's people uh, somewhere, someplace. Uh, but we pray now that as we meet, uh, that you would speak to us and that you would remind us again, that you would fill our hearts by the power of your spirit with real hope uh, as we think about uh, the birth of our Lord Jesus, uh, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, so uh, I got Ricky to preempt the question. Uh, what words come into your mind when you think about Christmas? Uh, probably a bunch of different things were said throughout the room, food, drinks, carols, holidays, presents family, friends. Uh, these are some of my favourites. Busy, messy, tired and stressful. Uh, not all the time, but you know, like, uh, those are some of the words that come into mind. What words come into your mind when you think about Christmas? I suspect that the word hope doesn't come into many of our minds. Uh, maybe it does, uh, but I, expect, uh, I suspect that it doesn't. But because in some ways, I think uh, that by and large, we've given up on the idea of hope. Uh, we all struggle with the way our world is, uh, the way our lives are. Uh, as Ricky alluded to, we had a, a, a kind of a, an example of that this week down on Flinders Street. Right? Our world's full of uh, disappointment and injustice and pain and suffering and hardship. And on some deep level, we'd like to think that there's something better on offer. Right? And we keep thinking that uh, maybe it's going to be through this relationship or course or, or this particular political system or experience or job or government or celebrity or leader or, or any, other, any number of other things. Right? Something somehow is going to save us from the mess of this world. It is going to transform this world uh, into the world that we really long for. And that's what we're looking for. So we put our hope in all sorts of things because they promise us so much and for at least a little while they might even deliver. But in the end, all of them let us down. All of them. Right? Because none of those people or things are able to save us from the mess of this world, are able to transform this world into the world that we long for. So after a while, with this constant cycle of our hopes being disappointed, uh, we're left discouraged or despondent or, or perhaps even devastated by that, depending on who or what you've put your hopes in. And so for, for many of us, in a, in a, in a kind of last-ditch attempt to protect ourselves, we give up on the idea of hope. We retreat into our, our self-protective uh, tortoise shell, so to speak. We say to ourselves, sure, the world's full of suffering and pain and injustice. Uh, there's a lot of messy stuff going on, but it's all there is, right? You're born, you live, you die. So just, just suck it up, really. Life goes on. Give up on this fanciful notion that there might be a better world than this. Uh, lots of people in our culture feel like that. Perhaps you feel like that. God's people, Israel, probably felt a bit like that when they first heard Isaiah's words in this passage. Uh, you might remember, if you were here, when we looked at the previous section of Isaiah a couple of weeks back, uh, we saw this awe-inspiring picture of God's righteous anger. Right? It was pretty confronting. God told his people that because of their pride, their stubbornness, their injustice, because they'd repeatedly put their trust in human rulers rather than in him, uh, that the hand of his anger was against them. Uh, so God said that he was going to use the might of the Assyrian Empire. He was going to use them like an axe. Right? The picture was that he was going to chop down all their trees until the whole land was laid bare. 
Right, the picture, kind of complete deforestation. That's the picture. Right, so just before today's passage, in at the end of Isaiah chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, uh, we see this. Isaiah says, uh, See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the boughs uh, with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall, below, uh, fall before the mighty one. Right, so that's the picture of Israel at the end of chapter 10 after they've experienced that the hand of God's righteous anger, as far as the eye can see, there's not even the tiniest shoot of life. Nothing. Absolute devastation. Completely hopeless. And yet almost immediately, we don't know how long it is between the end of chapter 10 and the start of chapter 11. Uh, but Isaiah is prophesying about these things almost immediately. In chapter 10, 11, verse 1, Isaiah gives us a glimmer of hope, doesn't he? He says, a shoot, just a shoot, is going to come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Right, so in the midst of everything being cut down, we've got this tiny shoot, a shoot uh, that you'll notice there where we're told it's going to come out of the stump of Jesse. Right, so, so what's this about Jesse? Well, you might remember, if you kind of know the story of the Old Testament a little bit, uh, Jesse is the father of King David. Right? That's significant because Isaiah is telling us that this shoot, this, this new life, is going to be a descendant of David. He's going to be a king who's, who's kind of part of the same dynasty as David. He's going to sit on the same throne as David. And if you've read through the first uh, kind of part of Isaiah, that might be a bit surprising. You might remember a few weeks back uh, that back in chapter 7 of Isaiah, it seemed like God had rejected David's throne. Right? Because in the face of all sorts of pressure, uh, King Ahaz, who was also a descendant of David, he was sitting on David's throne, uh, and yet Ahaz had failed dismally. Right? He would put his trust uh, in, the, in the might of the Assyrian Empire rather than in God. And so God had said, I'm, I'm turning away from you. That was your last chance. Yet despite that failure and the failure of all Israel's kings before Ahaz, God had made a promise. And God is faithful to his promises. Right? He promised David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one day one of his descendants would establish his kingdom. One of God's descendants, one of David's descendants, would build a house for David's name. And God said that he would establish the throne of this descendant of David. His kingdom would be established forever. That's 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14 in particular. And that descendant of David is Christ. This shoot, this new child... Uh, whose birth we remember every Christmas, uh, is the one who's born, uh, not just to give us a nice story, a, a little kind of fairy tale to remember at Christmas time, right? But to establish and rule over God's eternal kingdom. Uh, so Christ is this, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, a descendant of David. What does that tell us about him? It tells us that Christ is fully human. He actually, this is, actually is God himself in human form. It's not that he just seems human, but he actually is human. He is a genuine descendant of David. But look down in verse 10. If you've got the passage there, it would be useful. Down in verse 10, uh, there we see that Christ isn't just a shoot from the stump of Jesse. He's also the root of Jesse. 
I said, what's that about? Well, as it means, as I was thinking that as the eternal son of God, right, he probably doesn't fully understand what he's prophesying here because you join the dots in the New Testament, right? But as the eternal son of God, that the second person of the Trinity, Christ, existed before Jesse. Right? He's the cause of Jesse, the, the root of Jesse. You might remember in Colossians 1, Paul says, in Christ all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. So Christ, the the eternal Son of God, uh, is the root cause of all things, including Jesse. So right here in this passage, it's really it's quite jam-packed, but we see that Christ, that the child uh, who's born on that very first Christmas is both fully human, right? That's what the shoot of Jesse's about, and fully God, the root of Jesse. Uh, and that's important to remember, and it, because it really it's really that that brings hope. The fact that Jesus is fully human and fully God. Uh, imagine Israel. Their land's in a mess, their lives are in a mess, and every leader or ruler or king or, or, or hero that they have ever put their hope in has let them down. Everyone. Clearly, if someone's going to rescue them, going to bring about this world that they all want, a world full of justice and peace and grace and joy, if someone's going to bring about that kind of world, it's not going to be another human king. Because all those human kings that just keep messing it up, right? It's got to be God himself in human form. God come to establish and rule over his kingdom. That's Christ. That's why he brings actually brings hope to us. He's not just another human king, but God himself uh, in human form. Uh, Gabby and I uh, enjoy watching uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the the TV show. And, uh, sorry? Nine-Nine. Yeah, yeah, sweet. I'm not used to interaction. We're a Presbyterian church, you know, like I was... No, no, it's good. I, feel, I love it. I love it. So feel free to interact more. Anyway, so if you've seen this episode, uh, there's an episode we were watching recently where one of the characters, uh, his name's Terry, and Terry meets his childhood hero. This guy was an author who wrote Terry a special note when he was a kid. Uh, Terry, uh, if you've seen the show, he's an incredibly kind of muscly guy now, uh, kind of bodybuilder style. Uh, But when he was a kid, he was was a little bit more plump, uh, and he used to be bullied at school, uh, and uh, he was really devastated by that. He was struggling along, uh, and he wrote to his uh, favourite author, and the author wrote him a note that just gave him hope to get through, gave him hope to, to keep persevering in life. So a case comes into the uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and, uh, and uh, Terry decides that he's going to go and meet his lifelong hero. People warn him against it. They say, look, this is going to go wrong. You never meet your heroes. Like, they're never quite what you seem. But of course, he decides to meet him and it goes horribly. Uh, he discovers that, uh, that his so-called hero didn't even write the note. Uh, he kind of got one of his minions to do it because he was too busy uh, sleeping around, uh, having affairs and breaking up other people's marriages. I think we're all a bit like Terry. Right? All of us, uh, from time to time, to some extent, struggle with the way our lives are. Sure, there's some good things. I'm not, I'm not denying that, but there's also a whole lot of bad things. And so like Terry, we put our hope in something or even in someone 
who we think just might be able to kind of fix things, sort out the mess, bring about the world that we want. We choose them as our hero, if you like. Of course, the sad truth is that any personal thing we put our hope in, apart from God, is going to let us down. As heroic as that person might be or or might seem, the truth is they're just as flawed and broken and sinful as we are. That's not Christ. You can put your hope in Christ because he's the true hero of the story. He's the perfect king, the one who'll never let you down, the one who's thoroughly equipped, uh, not just to sort out the mess of your life, but to sort out the mess of the world uh, and to bring about the world that we all long for. I say thoroughly uh, thoroughly equipped because look at verse 2. If you've got the passage there, Christ is empowered by God's Spirit. He has everything he needs. Down in verse 9, you see that Christ's ultimate mission uh, is uh, in bringing about this world that we long for is that he's going to fill the world with the knowledge of the Lord. That's the goal. But but to do that, uh, he's got to, as a global ruler, he's got to have wisdom and understanding. That's verse 2. Uh, he's got to uh, be able to give proper counsel. He, he's got to be able to use his power rightly. And of course, if he's going to be someone who's going to lead the whole world to be full of the knowledge of, Lord, of the Lord, uh, he has to be full of the knowledge of the Lord himself. Isaiah's point in verse 2 is that by the power of God's Spirit, Christ is thoroughly equipped, not lacking in anything, to, to bring about this world that we long for. And you can chase up in the New Testament, we don't have time today, but if you want to look up when um, Jesus starts his ministry, you want to read Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 4, same language about Christ being uh, anointed with the Spirit, and Luke chapter 4, where Jesus starts his ministry, he says, Jesus is saying, I am the one that Isaiah spoke about, the one who's anointed with God's Spirit to bring about this new creation. And this uh, new creation uh, is one, as we see in verses 3 to 5, in which there will be perfect justice. That's what verses 3 to 5, it's all about justice. Uh, We know that our world's full of injustice, Uh, in case you're doubting that. Remember that practically from the moment a child can speak, uh, they're crying out, it's not fair. They get it. The world is full of injustice. We all long for justice to be done, not just in, at some times, in some places, but at all times, in all places. And Isaiah says that's what Christ is going to bring. And the, the reason he's going to be able to bring it is because he's unlike any judge we've ever known before. First, he, he doesn't judge by what he sees. See that there? He's not uh, distracted or swayed or manipulated in any way by someone's appearance. Everyone gets treated fairly, no matter how they look, because he doesn't judge by what he sees. And he doesn't judge by what he hears, right? As if somehow he's reliant on the testimony of some witness. Remember, we're talking about the eternal Son of God in human form. It's not as if my version of events is going to add something to his knowledge. He doesn't need my testimony or your testimony. He sorts everything out himself. He doesn't judge by what he hears. Christ is the perfect judge, not distracted by what people look like, what people say, what people think of him. He's completely fair and impartial and just in every situation. Now, how is that possible? What what is it that enables him to bring about this kind of justice? Well, it's in verse 3. That's the key. Verse 3 tells us that Christ's delight, his, his deepest joy, is in the fear of the Lord. 
Christ's delight, his pleasure, uh, is not in getting the approval of other people. That's not what drives him. It's getting his father's approval, the, the Lord's approval. We've all got this fear, don't we? This fear of, what will other people think of me? Not Christ. Christ doesn't have that fear. He's driven principally by his fear, his respect, his honour of his Father. He's crystal clear on what his Father thinks of him, so he doesn't care so much of what other people think of him. Right? So he's free. Right? He's free from the expectations or opinions or perceptions of others to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord in every situation. And that's how he brings about this transformed world, a world full of perfect justice. And as he brings about that justice, uh, he sets everything right. It'll bring peace. That's verses 6 to 9. I'll I'll read from uh, verse 6 again. Uh, The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will uh, feed with the bear, The young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, to really get the sense of what Isaiah is saying here, I think a bit of backstory would be helpful. Because uh, way back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, right at the start of the Bible, uh, God created a world in which people really feared him. Uh, People honoured God as they should, they respected him, uh, they had this perfect knowledge of him. They trusted God to define what was good and evil, right and wrong. So what what was the state of the world in that situation? The whole world was unified, it was in harmony, it was in perfect peace. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, but in Genesis, 1, uh, Genesis 3, humanity rejected their knowledge of God. They said, we trust our knowledge of things more than yours. They didn't fear or honour God as they should. So instead of listening to God, they listened to what? Remember, they listened to the serpent. And that brought cosmic consequences. And if you can imagine, uh, you're, you're carrying a crystal vase, and in a moment something goes wrong, you drop the vase on the ground. That's the world in Genesis 3. A world that was in perfect unity is now fractured all over the place. But even there in Genesis 3, God promised that one day a descendant of Eve would be born, a child uh, who would bring peace and harmony and healing to the brokenness in the world. That promised child, once again, is Christ. You know, Christ is the hero of the story, you see. So in verses 6 to 9, Isaiah is giving us these pictures of that, that peace that Christ will bring, putting together the pieces of this fractured world, transforming this world into the world that we actually long for. Right? And you can see uh, that the peace is, is so pervasive uh, that predators are going to lie down with their prey. Absolutely no hostility anymore. Massive animals like cows and lions are going to be led along by children. Uh, and notice verse 8. Have a look in verse 8. Uh, we've got this infant. You, you might have thought, that's a bit random. Why, why is Isaiah referring to an infant playing near the home of a cobra, a viper? Well, it's a serpent, isn't it? You remember Genesis 3? That's the backstory, story. Right? The point is that, that Christ is going to completely reverse and fix up what happened back in Genesis 3. Right? The curse of humanity's sin that, that started by uh, them listening to the serpent is going to be gone. The world's going to be at perfect peace. 
And the key to that piece is it there in verse 9. Right, this new world, what's it going to be full of? What's, going to, what, what's it going to be full of? It's going to be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Right, so just as in Genesis 3, the, the rejection of the knowledge of God, we know better than you, God, right, that kind of dynamic, uh, that brought about the fracturing of our world. So also here, and the return of the knowledge of the Lord to every corner of the creation as the waters cover the sea is going to bring about the healing of the world. So the birth of Christ, this new shoot, this, this child brings incredible hope. A world full of perfect justice, a world of peace. Uh, in verses 10 to 16, uh, a world of grace. Uh, we can't unpack all this. Good on you, Stuart, for, for reading the whole passage out. Uh, we're not going to kind of look at every verse in this section. But the point of this section uh, is that this hope of a new world is offered to everyone. Uh, have a look in verse 10. Uh, you see there that God is going to raise Christ up like a banner, right? The, the root of Jesse, so that people from every nation can come to him. Right? There's no secret. Right? God is raising Christ up as a banner to draw people to, to, to him. Right in verse 11, God's reaching out his hand, his hand which, in, remember, in chapters 9 and 10 was a hand of anger, but now it's a hand of grace, of mercy, of comfort, and God's gathering in his people from every nation, from the farthest corners of the world. Right, so Isaiah's vision here uh, is actually is one at the same time, uh, at one and the same time, two things. Right, first, it's radically exclusive. Right, God has only raised up one banner. Notice that, not lots of banners. It's Christ, the root of Jesse. So salvation, God's rescue, God's grace is only found in this child, in Christ, this King. It's exclusive. On the other hand, Isaiah's vision is radically inclusive. Right? But because no matter who you are or what you've done, no matter what gender or sexuality or ethnicity or, or socioeconomic background you might be, you can come to Christ. He's out there. He's raised up as a banner for the nations. You can come to him and receive God's grace. You can receive the sure and certain hope of enjoying this new world that every single one of us long for. So this vision here, it's both uh, radically exclusive and radically inclusive. I say that this hope is certain uh, because it's not, it's not contingent on you or me. In fact, it's not contingent on any human being. If that was the case, we'd mess it up, right? We, we keep falling short, right? But, but this hope uh, is not contingent on us and what we do. It's about God and what he's going to do through Christ. Uh, you, you may have been tuning in an hour when Stuart was reading, uh, but if you scan this passage, you'll notice that there's absolutely no commands in the passage. No commands at all. There's no sense of God saying, if you do this, I'll do this. Right? 36 times in the passage, God says, I will do this, I will do this, this will happen, this shall happen. Oh, the whole passage is a list of unconditional promises that God is making. No strings attached. This is what God is going to do in and through Christ, this child who's born. So because this passage is about what God's going to do, and if uh, God is God, uh, then no one can stop him doing what he wants to do, uh, then that's one way of saying our hope is certain. Right? It's not a fairy tale, it's not wishful thinking, uh, it's what God is going to do through Christ. Of course, there's more to be said there if you're not convinced of that. 
You've at least got to consider the evidence. Uh, consider the fact that Christ already gave us a whole bunch of glimpses of this new world. Some of you might be familiar with some of the stories in the Gospels, the biographies of, of Jesus' life. Uh, and Jesus, uh, when he went around on earth, he was healing the sick and feeding the hungry and cleansing the diseased and including the outcasts and raising the dead. What are those things? They're little sneak peeks. They're, they're trailers of the new world. They're appetizers. Jesus is saying, this is the beginnings. This is the new world that I'm going to create. He's given us glimpses already, right? And the ultimate glimpse is the fact that Christ himself was raised from the dead. And what happened to his body? It was gloriously transformed into a new creation. So how much more is he going to be able to do that for you and me and for this entire world? Now, I don't have time to unpack all the reasons why I think Jesus was raised from the dead in history. I'm happy to have that conversation. But I'm saying we're not called to just believe this. This is not some fairy tale world, some fantasy world. It's based on these historical events. Jesus went around doing these amazing things and Jesus was raised from the dead. That's why our hope is both sure and certain. A hope of a world of justice and peace and grace and finally of joy. Uh, if you look at that, uh, those six verses in chapter 12, uh, it's pretty clear that the, the big idea is joy. I think if you have a look at those verses, verses 1 and 4, uh, God's people are praising God. Uh, in verse 5, they're singing to him. In verse 6, they're, they're shouting to him. Why, why, are they, why are they so full of joy? Well, verses 1 to 3. In that day, you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Why? Well, I think because is implied here. But because although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Right? I'm trying to emphasize these ideas. Right? Their joy comes from the fact that they know they've been saved. They've been rescued. And you might say, well, what do I have to be rescued from? What do they have to be rescued from? Well, it's, it's Isaiah chapters 9 and 10, right? They had to be rescued from God's anger. They know, verse 1, that they have sinned. They've been selfish and proud and unjust, and, and God's anger was upon them, but, but God's anger has been turned away. But how has that happened? Well, it's because this child, uh, Christ, was lifted up. Right? We heard before he was going to be lifted up as a banner to the nations, but at least initially, he wasn't lifted up as a banner, but he was lifted up on a cross, wasn't he? And when he was lifted up, he was struck or, or pierced by the hand of God's anger. So in John 19, verse 34, we read that one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. And when that happened, a, a sudden flow of both uh, blood and, and water came out. That's interesting, right? Why would John, when he's sitting down writing about Jesus' life, be uh, concerned about pointing out that there's water in Jesus' blood? Well, way back in, in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 17, God had set his people Israel free from slavery in Egypt, uh, but as they wandered through the wilderness, they got thirsty. They got grumpy. They started complaining against God, uh, acting selfishly and, and proudly, and God, uh, as if God wasn't even caring for them. 
After everything God had done for them, right? He'd set them free from Egypt. He was guiding them through the promised land, providing for them every step of the way. But no, God's not caring for me. Uh, so, after, uh, so God was a, a bit angry about that. So he told Moses to get Israel to stand in front of a particular rock. And then he said to Moses that he was going to stand on the rock himself. right? And then he says something incredible. He told Moses to take out his rod, the stick that he used to use to punish God's people when they broke God's law. And he said to Moses, I want you to strike the rock. Right? Everybody get this, right? He's just told Moses that I'm going to be standing on the rock. And then he tells Moses, strike the rock with your rod of punishment. You get the picture. God is taking Israel's place. God is absorbing the anger that they deserve. He's asking Moses to strike him rather than Israel. And what happens when Moses strikes the rock? But water comes gushing out. Water that brings Israel life and satisfaction and joy. So God bears the anger that Israel deserves so they can receive life and satisfaction and joy that they don't deserve. It's incredible grace. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul explains that that rock in the wilderness was really just a signpost pointing to Christ. So in John 19, when Jesus' side is struck, it's pierced. It's not just, just oh, that's interesting, a Roman soldier pierced Jesus' side. No, it's that the rod of God's anger at your sin and my sin uh, is coming down on Christ. So like Israel, who experienced joy as they drank water from that rock in the wilderness, like the people in Isaiah 12 who experienced joy as they draw water from the wells of salvation, we too can experience joy as we drink the living water that comes from Christ. The water that flows from his wounded side there in John 19 as he dies in our place to turn away God's anger at our sin. I started today by asking you what words come into your mind when you think about Christmas. And it's okay if presents and food and all sorts of other things come into your mind. But I wonder if after today the word hope might come into your mind. In a world that's full of disappointment and injustice and and pain, we all feel that. A world in which everyone and everything we put our hope in lets us down. In that world, Christ, this child who grows up to be the king, Isaiah is describing here in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, Christ offers us a certain hope and and really a glorious hope. Uh, The hope of a world that all of us deep down long for. A world full of perfect justice and peace and grace and joy. That's something really worth celebrating this year. Let me pray. Uh, Gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Isaiah's vision of this new world uh, that Christ is going to bring about. Uh, You know our struggles uh, with living in this world, the struggles we have in our lives. Uh, We thank you that Christ is thoroughly equipped to bring about the world that we long for, a world of perfect uh, justice and peace and grace and joy. We do pray, Father, that uh, we would come to see uh, Christ, our King, who grew up, uh, who died on the cross to turn away uh, your anger against us, and whose side was pierced, uh, showing us that uh, as that water flowed, uh, that we can experience uh, satisfaction and life and joy in knowing him and in him alone. Uh, In his name we pray. Amen.